Well, hello friends, uh, my name's Brad. I'm part of the teaching and leadership team here at Jericho Ridge and welcome to 2021, which means that 2020 is in the rearview mirror. And many people are almost giddy about this and commentators and others are taking to calling 2020 the worst year ever amongst other things. And while we're not gonna engage in what I like to call the suffering Olympics, where people compare hardships to see who gets the gold medal for the most challenging year ever, one thing we do need to just pause and pay attention to is how we individually and corporately respond when, not if, but when bad things happen to us. Things have happened to a lot of people in our community this year. Challenging health news, chronic illnesses, financial lives falling apart, or small things like car accidents, or big things like family members dying. And when we don't get into the school that we want, or when we're dealing with a difficult friendship, any number of bad things can and maybe did happen to you in 2020 or might happen to you in 2021. And so the question that we need to wrestle with is what do you do when you come up against your own personal or a collective worst year ever? And as people seeking to live as faithful Christians in the world, we take our cues from scripture. So when hard things come into our lives, sometimes people are quick to suggest a reading of the book of Job might be in order. They suggest, well, maybe you could find out the reason for your suffering, or they say maybe the book of Job can help you ask good questions about bad things that happen to you or in our world. But what we're gonna see in our five-week study of this deeply intriguing book is that it's actually not really designed to answer some of the questions we're fond of asking it. But the book of Job does push us to ask better, deeper, and perhaps harder questions of ourselves and issues in our lives in the world. Questions like, if God is the source of all good things, and what does it mean when some of those things disappear from our lives? Or what's the relationship between sin and suffering? Is God just, and does God run the world according to justice? So if you're ready, we're gonna dive in together. And first, let me give you a bit of background. The book of Job shows up just before Psalms in the Old Testament. It's part of the category of the Bible known as wisdom literature. But unlike many parts of the Bible, there are a lot of things that we just don't know about the book of Job. We don't know who wrote it. We don't know when it was written. We do know that it was clearly part of the Hebrew scriptures from very early on. It's mentioned in the book of Ezekiel, and it contains almost every form of writing in the Old Testament, narrative, poetry, dialogue. There's a whole middle section that reads like a made-for-TV courtroom drama with both Job and God in the docket. And the majority of the book is actually this segment. It's a poetic argument between Job and his friends, ultimately between Job and God, arguing about things like divine justice. Does suffering have a purpose and whether or not Job has sinned or done something wrong to deserve some of the things that happen to him? And, and we need to keep in mind the fact that the most of the book is poetry is really a key to interpreting it. 
Because poetry doesn't often yield the same kind of straightforward insights that narratives do. And we need to pay attention to what kinds of theological answers we are asking the book of Job to give it. And some of those things may be answers to questions that it may or may not be designed to answer. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. So in order to understand the book, we have to start at the very beginning, a very good place to start. So turn with me in your Bibles or on your devices to Job chapter one. We're gonna look today at the first two chapters of what's called the narrative frame that sets up the rest of the book. And we're gonna ask some good questions about bad things. So in the book of Job, it begins with a clear and strong description of two primary characteristics of this person, Job, both of which are important. So first thing is Job's piety. Look with me at Job chapter one, verse one. There once was a man named Job who lived in the land of Uz. He was blameless, a man of complete integrity. He feared God and stayed away from evil. Now piety, means that Job was blameless, upright, a person who worshiped God, participated in spiritual activities that helped him stay vitally connected with God. And in Job's day, uh, this was accomplished mostly through sacrifices. And we see in chapter one, verse five, that Job was so careful to be pious that he offered just in case sacrifices, somehow in case that his kids might have sinned in some way and it's important for us to note that Job's goodness is cemented and assured because that's gonna be questioned repeatedly throughout the book. So first thing we see right away in Job chapter one, verse one is, Job is like super religious. The second thing we see is Job was actually super rich. Job chapter one, verse two tells us about Job's prosperity. He had seven sons and three daughters. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 teams of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and he also had many servants. He was in fact the richest person in that entire area. So here in the first two verses, we're already confronted with the central question of the book of Job. We, we actually just don't know it yet. The central question that the book wants to help us understand and discuss isn't necessarily the problem of evil in the world, although we will touch on that later, and it isn't only about suffering, although we will get to that in a minute. The big question of the book of Job is, what is the link between prosperity and piety? Put another way, if I'm good, doesn't God owe me goodness in return? You see, in the ancient world, the view of life was that if you were super religious, that that gave you a direct correlation and connection with God. And that meant that you were hashtag super blessed. Material wealth and good health were taken in that culture as signs of God's blessing and favor on your life individually, or also nationally. And the opposite for them was also true. If you lacked health, it was a sign that you probably lacked faith. And if you lacked material resources, it was a sign that something was probably wrong in your relationship with God. 
You probably had some hidden or unconfessed sin in your life that was preventing you from experiencing God's full blessings and favor. And we might call uh, versions of this today the prosperity gospel. But lest that you think this is only a problem for our African or Latin American friends, I have to confess that I sense a bit of this creeping into my own thinking from time to time, and maybe you do too. We can be tempted to think things like, well, if I read my Bible in the morning, keep up with this whole book of John plan that Jericho is doing in January, isn't God's kind of obligated to make my day go better? Or if I give of my resources generously, like doesn't the New Testament say that God's obligated to bless me? So this is a kind of transactional view of God that is actually pretty easy to fall into. But however tempting it is, this is not the God that we find revealed to us in the scriptures. In fact, we're about to see through Job's experiences that life is much, much more complicated than simplistic cause and effect. There are forces at play beyond your and my personal relationship with Jesus that we need to take into consideration in our assessment of the world. And this is perhaps the most fascinating part of the whole book of Job to me. In chapters one and two, they recount for us a kind of divine council meeting, a scene where God and the sons of God, angelic beings of some sort, are holding court in a heavenly setting, starting in Job chapter one, verse six, and in waltzes the accuser. Now, we have to pause here for a moment and look at who this shadowy figure is. The original language that this was written in is ancient Hebrew. And in ancient Hebrew, this figure is called Ha-Satan, or the Satan, lowercase s, which is translated for us the accuser. So people who translated the book of Job rushed into other places in the Old and New Testament to find this figure. And they settle in places like Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, where the accuser, of the brethren is thrown down. And 1 Peter, uh, where it describes the adversary of our souls, and they say, aha, this must be Satan, capital S, because Satan is the accuser. But in the original Hebrew, that figure is not present here. Satan, capital S, is a proper name, but Hasatan is a title, it's a function, the accuser, which is eventually where we get the name Satan from, but it doesn't actually appear in this text. So to be Hasatan, or a Satan, small case, means to be an adversary or an accuser of some sort. So to be clear, don't hear what I'm not saying. Satan does exist and is very real and active in his work to oppose God in the world. It's just likely that he isn't the figure in this story, contrary to what you may have seen on some scary flannel graph in Sunday school growing up. This is not capital S Satan who just saunters into heaven and has a chat as an almost equal to the Almighty. This is a different figure, Ha-Satan. In, or, in fact, just to underscore this, there's a number of other places in the Old Testament where this phrase is used. 
For example, in Numbers chapter 22, the story of Balaam and his donkey, the angel of the Lord is referred to as Ha-Satan, an adversary to Balaam, after Balaam runs his donkey off the road. So just to underscore, if the angel of the Almighty can be Ha-Satan, this is not a proper name. It's a role or a title that comes into play anytime someone opposes the purposes and the will of the Almighty. So to be Hasatan is, if you think about a courtroom, to function like a prosecuting attorney. And so Job, uh, God says about Job in Job chapter 1 verse 8, have you noticed my servant Job? He's the finest man in all the earth. He's blameless, a man of complete integrity. He fears God, stays away from evil. And Hasatan, the accuser, comes in against that position to argue the case. Hasatan replies to the Lord, well, yes, but Job has good reason to fear God. Verse 10, you've always put a wall of protection around him and his home and his property. You've made him prosper in everything he does. Look at how rich he is, but reach out. Take everything away that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. All right. You may test him, the Lord said to Hasatan. Do whatever you want with everything he possesses, but don't harm him physically. So Hasatan left the Lord's presence. You see, the accuser is making the case that Job is only righteous and only loves God because God has protected Job and made him prosper. The accuser says, in essence, uh, God, if you were not such a helicopter parent doting on bragging about protecting your kid from anything and everything, well, what would happen? And God says, let's find out. And find out we do. Look at the next set of verses. Job's sons and his daughters are feasting. A messenger comes in with horrible news. Job's oxen and donkeys were stolen by Sabian raiders and all of his farmhands were killed off. Verse 16, while that person was still speaking, another messenger arrived with the news. The fire of God's fallen from heaven, burned up your sheep and all the shepherds. I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, a third messenger arrived with the news. Three bands of Chaldean raiders have stolen your camels and killed your servants. I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another messenger arrived with this news. Your sons and your daughters were feasting in their oldest brother's home. And suddenly a powerful wind swept in from the wilderness. It hit the house on all sides and the house collapsed. And all of your children are dead, Job. I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. See why we called this series in the book of Job the worst year ever? Job has a terrible, horrible, not good, very bad day. And so at this point, if I'm Job, I would be like, uh, yeah, I think I'm done. I'm tapping out. I need to just take some time and reassess my life and my relationship with the Almighty. But instead, Job utters some of the most familiar or famous words in the book. He says in Job 1.21, I came naked from my mother's womb, 
and I will be naked when I leave. The Lord gave me what I had, and the Lord has taken it away. Praise the name of the Lord. In all this, the text says, Job did not sin by blaming God. So on that question of piety and blessing, so far so good, Job is still sinless. He's penniless, but at least he's got his health, right? Wrong. Let's keep reading. In Job chapter 2, there's another assembly of the heavenly court, and Hasatan is there. Again, it feels a bit like the Bill Murray movie Groundhog Day. Yahweh the Lord says, oh, Hasatan, where have you been? What have you been up to? Hasatan says, oh, not much, you know, just cruising the earth, doing some people watching. And Yahweh says, hmm, have you noticed my servant Job? He's the finest man in all the earth. He's blameless, a man of complete integrity. He fears God, stays away from evil, and... He has maintained his integrity, even though you urged me to harm him without cause. And Hasatan says, not unjustifiably, uh, let's just push this test a little bit further then, shall we? Skin for skin. A man will give up everything he has to save his life, but reach out and take away his health, and he will surely curse you to your face. And God allows Hasatan to proceed so long as Job's life is spared. So Hasatan rushes out, strikes Job with terrible boils from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet, and Job sits among the ashes of his former life, scraping his scabs with a broken shard of pottery and says nothing. But at this point, in the scene, we're introduced to a new character, Job's wife, and Job's wife can't help herself. She has been a supportive, nurturing, silent spouse to this point, but it is just too much. So she leans in to give Job some theological and marital advice. She says, uh, Job, honey, I love you, but after all that has happened to you, are you still trying to maintain your integrity? Curse God and die. More supportive words were never uttered during a time of marital conflict. Honey, my best advice to you is curse God and die. Ouch. But see, Job looks at his life through a different lens. He seems to almost accept his fate and he responds to his wife in Job chapter 2 verse 10. He says, you talk like a foolish woman. Should we accept only good things from the hand of God and never anything bad? So in all this again, the narrator reminds us, Job said nothing wrong. Still blameless. After all that's happened to him, Job, it says, doesn't sin with his lips. Now he might be sinning elsewhere in his thoughts, in his heart, but he remains congruent in his faith and his faithfulness for the time being. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Shall we accept and expect only good things from God and not adversity? Are his two responses, wow and wow. Do you remember what I said was a main question in the book of Job earlier? I said, it's not so much a question of suffering or how could a just God let this kind of thing happen to poor old Job. We're gonna explore some of that. 
The main point of this poetic narration is to help us get clear in our minds the relationship between piety and prosperity. See, sometimes we're tempted to relate to God in such a way that God will bless us with stuff that we want. We can be tempted to see religion as a kind of cosmic vending machine. We just put in the right set of super spiritual actions, prayer, financial generosity, care for people who are poor, consistent digital church attendance, whatever, as a kind of insurance. And we can slide into the trap of thinking that, well, if we do these things, God owes us some measure of protection or favor or blessing. Even some of our modern worship songs and some of our thinking about spiritual practices can become tainted with this kind of if-then thinking. But Job understands something about the nature of reality that can be very hard for us to grasp. What Job is going to help us understand is that if you're only in a relationship for what you can get out of the other party, that's not a real relationship. That is using someone or something for your own benefit. You cannot do religious actions to get into God's good books and then expect God to somehow bless you. To put it bluntly, God is not your cosmic vending machine. See, it can be easy for us to forget that compared to most of the world and most of history, we live under very privileged conditions. And what you and I have as we stand here at the dawn of a new year, we have by God's grace and by God's goodness, not because you somehow earned it or pushed the right buttons to make God dispense to you God's divine favor. I love what pastor and author Timothy Keller says in his book, Generous Justice. If you have money, power and status today, it is due to the century and place in which you were born, to your talents and capacity and health, none of which you earned. In short, all of your resources are in the end the gift of God's grace. That's why we here at Jericho practice generosity as one of our core values, because we recognize that everything that we have, all that we are, is a gift that we have received. We came into this world with nothing, and we will leave with nothing. And if you and I have received anything good, it is because God has given it to us, not because we have owed it or have earned it. This would be the time that Sandy Young would say amen if we're meeting in person. And we're reminded of this fact because Job also helps us explore the flip side or the shadow side of that thinking. We should also be asking questions to expose thin places in our thinking. Like, well, if God was blessing me during the good times, what does that mean when I am in a season of hardships? Are difficulties somehow a punishment? from God. And Job looks at his life and his answer is a resounding no. So here's the second thing that we learn from the first two chapters of Job. And that is that your current condition is not necessarily a measurement of divine favor. 
Hebrew Bible scholar John Walton puts it this way, Hasatan challenges God's policy of rewarding the righteous by suggesting that it corrupts their motives and proves them to be less righteous. And this accusation gives the book an interesting twist for while we might be inclined, along with Job and his friends, to spend time asking why righteous people suffer, Hasatan turns the question upside down and asks, why should they prosper? In this way, the book of Job gives us the answers we need to questions we rarely think to ask rather than the answers that we thought that we wanted. See, Job understands that just like blessings are not necessarily an indicator of God's favor, so too hardships are not an indicator that God has left you or that God hates you or that God is not protecting you. Sometimes, we are tempted to look at someone who's maybe suffering from chronic illness and think, oh, they must not have enough faith to be healed. But Job shows us that we need to de-link our present circumstances from our expectations of God. See, Job in these few short verses had both amazing wealth and amazing hardships. And yet in both instances, he remains in right relationship with God. And so friends, I wanna to say to you that God is present in times of plenty or in times of want and hardship. Your current condition or set of experiences is not a measurement of divine favor. Here's the third and final point that I want for us to keep in mind today and that is that we never see the full picture. So we need to guard what we say. Remember, Job actually had no access to the events occurring in heaven. He doesn't know what's going on around him. His perspective is limited to his experiences. Like 1 Corinthians 13 verse 12 says, now we see things imperfectly, like puzzling reflections in a mirror. But then one day, we will see everything with perfect clarity. And that I know now is partial and incomplete, but then one day I will know everything completely just as God now knows me completely. And in the coming weeks in the book of Job, we're gonna go on a journey with Job's friends and we'll hear from God as God gives Job a tour of the inner workings of the universe. But at this point, all of that is opaque and unknown to Job, just like a year stretching out in front of us. Job only sees and only knows what's right in front of him, and yet he still chooses to express his trust and his confidence in God. In 1820, a young girl named Fanny was born in Putnam County, New York. She became ill within the first two weeks of her life and a man pretending to be the family doctor treated her by prescribing hot mustard poultices to be applied to her eyes. Her illness eventually relented, but the treatment actually left her blinded for life. And a few short months later, her father died and her mother was forced to find work as a maid to support her family. And so she was sent away and raised mostly by her Christian grandmother, a very hard and challenging life blind. By age eight, Fanny was writing poetry, memorizing whole sections of the Bible diligently. 
She eventually was admitted to a school for people who were blind. By age 23, she was writing and addressing Congress and giving counsel to presidents. She never grew bitter, but she kept her focus on filling herself with God's goodness and focusing on God's love for her. Fanny J. Crosby went on to write over 9,000 hymns, many of which are still some of the best love and sung to this day. She often wrote about heaven and her faith stands like Job's as a testimony that at this point in our lives, friends, we only see the parts that we can see. But we have to have the confidence and the faith to trust God for the parts that we cannot yet see.